Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Hi guys, welcome back to the show. This is the fourth and final part with the Jim Muller on Jim Miller chokes, Miller Muller choke tubes, and um, again, almost better than the last one. I don't know how they just keep getting better, but they do. So uh, it's going to be the last one for a while. We're both going to be busy. He's going to be busy uh, traveling stuff, but we will try to get him on mid season. Uh, to talk about my results with the choke that I am now using in my twenty gauge. If you guys haven't heard part one, two, and three, you have to go back and listen to this. I'm telling you, um, it's. I think it's opened a, a lot of our eyes, a lot of your guys' eyes that listen to it. I know it's opened mine. Jake, uh, Travis has been talking about it. It's crazy. So um, yeah, go go check those other ones out if you haven't listened to those. You're gonna enjoy this one. And I did just want to let you know before we start, we partnered with Motion Ducks. You got to get this deal. If you ever heard of Motion Ducks, it's a jerk rig system that uh, is on steroids, basically. You can put uh, four to seven and even more than that if you want on one jerk rig. And the way they move, you guys have seen them. We use them in our videos all the time, not just because of the videos, because we hunt with them. If you guys want to go out with a small spread and you want to go out there and you don't want to carry a lot, you can put four light decoys on a Motion Ducks, sling it over your shoulder with the jerk string and the little weight. And you can go out there and kill ducks. We've done it so many times with just those four on a motion duck. So if you want to get a good deal, it helps support the channel. It helps support the podcast. We'd highly appreciate if you use our code. Go to motionducks.com forward slash MVM, short for Mid-Valley Mercenaries. And you'll pull up our own specific page on Motion Ducks website. And you're going to get a deal and a half because it'll tell you how much you're getting off actually on that. And to get an additional 10% on top of that, you put in the code MIDVALLEY in checkout and you'll get an additional 10% off. So you get the whole ultimate spreader. You can use four or seven, depending on what you want to do. You get a free anchor bag and you get an additional 10% off the already smoking deal. So that is that. Now up, up is Jim Moeller. Well, let me ask you let me ask you a question there because I, I totally understand what you're saying because everyone's going to say, well, then if you're saying if it's under 35 yards, then people are going to be like, that's what I've been saying. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That's what people are going to say when they hear you say that. I know why you're saying that, but I want to ask this. Okay, so let's say 
I'm using still, and I, this is from personal experience. That's all this is, yeah. okay? And mallard to me is a pretty tough bird. Um, not as tough as divers or like that, but it's it's fairly tough, right? I've had where I when I shot Super X for years, that's where I really shot, and I usually shot three shot whatever. A lot for a long time it was two and three quarters three shot. Then I moved to three inch three shot. And I would shoot this mallard. Let's just say it was 20, 25 yards. Okay, boom. It hits and rolls him hard. I mean, close right there. Boom. He falls in the water and then he has his head up and he's going over. I mean, I can't tell you how many times. Obviously, if I would have made a headshot, that would be a different scenario, right? But he flushes over into the, and yes, he's probably going to die. And he's in the toys. My dog brings him out. He's still alive, right? Well, what I've noticed is, see, now, that may take another shot. Guys don't have a dog. You got to put more still on that bird or he's going to get away. Uh, yeah, he'll probably die, but he's going to get away. So, because <clears throat> I've had it happen so many times over the years, longer ago. What I've found with bismuth, so in turn, let me back up. You shoot more ammo for the same bird because you're trying to kill that bird, right? Now you, I've moved over to bismuth. And, okay, I'm 25 yards, boom, I hit that bird, folds him. He's dead, stone dead. Even if I made a body shot and I didn't quite make the head shot or whatever, I've tried to explain that to people, not that I'm pushing, but I have no reason. I could care less if people shoot still, bismuth, tungsten, whatever. It doesn't matter to me. But I can truly say by tracking my shots, by tracking what I did with still, what I'd done with bismuth, over a whole season, multiple seasons, I've shot, the same amount of birds are more with less shells because of the lethality, I feel like. Is that something you've seen as well yourself? Absolutely. So so the thing is, with steel shot, and like I said, inside 25 yards, it doesn't matter a lot, right? Mm. Past, past 25, it starts to become important. Past 35, it becomes pretty critical. Mm. And past 45, it's another world, right? So... The reason I say past 45 is because I don't like to use steel shot past 40. Mm. So that's that critical distance where I think it's really important to know what you're doing. But if you're shooting ducks inside 25 yards, whether you're using, let's say you're using steel and then you're crippling birds and then you go to bismuth at 25 yards and you're suddenly killing more birds. My observation and my, what I've seen the reason that's happening is because the pattern is not what it should be. You've got way too many spaces between the pellets because of hypervelocity mm. com combined with too big of a pellet, which means you've got too many spaces between the big pellets. And even though you're hitting them in the body, you're only hitting them with maybe two or three pellets in the body and it's not hitting a vital. Mm. So yes, it's penetrating, but it's not hitting a vital to where the duck is going to die immediately. The duck's going to die seconds or minutes or hours mm -hmm. later. Mm -hmm. So that's what you're seeing different. With the bismuth, you're getting more pellets on target, more energy transferred because more pellets are on the target. And that's the reason that they're dying because you're hitting the vital. So of course, if we're on the front of the bird, head, neck, right. heart, lungs, Lungs, they're not going to die immediately, but they're going to die pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Heart, neck, and head, they're going to die immediately. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the more pellets you have hitting the bird, the better chance you have, which is why I said you want to have a minimum of 100 pellets in a 30-inch circle to create that. Mm 
Mm. Right. Right. If you shoot, if you shoot a mallard in the, in the back end with a high powered rifle, it's not going to die right away. Mm-hmm. Half of the duck will be gone, but he's still going to be flopping around for a while before he finally dies a grueling death. Right. Yeah. 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 So, so think of that in terms you know, you've got, you've got thousands of foot pounds of energy, right. Mm. Out of a, out of a high powered rifle. And you've got a very small fraction of foot pounds of energy out of pellets of a shotgun. So it's very important that we put the pellets in the vitals for a quick humane kill. And the reason that we see that better with bismuth and heavier alloy shot, like the old lead days, and now the TSS is because we're putting more pellets onto the bird, which is hitting vitals at a higher ratio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, if you were to take that steel load, and I, I'm going to say this just to clarify something, if you were to take the same steel load, let's say an ounce and a quarter, because that's a very common steel load these days in a three-inch hull, and you were to shoot it at 1,200 feet per second through that same choke that you had birds swim away, I assure you that bird would have died mm. because you would have had that many more pellets on the target. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's truly a pellet size, velocity, payload, choke ratio that creates the dead, the clean kill, or the cripple. Yeah. And it's, and, and then, bottom line is we just haven't, we probably, myself and a lot of us just haven't seen that No, our, I mean, for, for ourselves. You know what I mean? That's why no, we, I mean, let, let's be honest. I'm not, I'm not trying to take anything away from bismuth led TSS or anything, but let's be honest. And this is through experience. This isn't made up mm-hmm. at 25 yards with an open choke. Like let's say my decoy choke, my decoy choke with a steel seven at 25 yards, I can kill a Canada goose like you hit him with a sledgehammer. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's because you're covering the bird with a blanket of pellets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have enough energy to penetrate the vitals. Of course they do at 25 yards. A steel target seven is incredibly deadly inside 25 yards. And you do so with a huge pattern. And, you know, yeah, you might be picking a lot of pellets out of the meat or out of your teeth. But what I'm saying, the point I'm trying to bring across is if you hit a bird at 25 yards with 50 pellets, it's dead. Yeah. If you hit a bird at 25 yards with one single steel BB, it's not going to die. Yeah. <clears throat> Just because you're shooting a big pellet doesn't mean you're going to kill a bird. Yeah. And, and this is one of the big fallacies that goose hunters, um, snow goose hunters especially because i've seen it think that they got to shoot a triple b or bb to be killing snow geese at long distance you know there's only 100 pellets in a shell some shells only have 90 pellets in it you're already below the 100 pellet 30 inch circle before you pull a trigger Mm -hmm. what do you think is going to happen at 40 50 60 yards which is where you think you need it right the only place that a steel BB is good ballistically is inside 30 yards. And that's through the right choke mm. with the right load. Mm. So it's kind of amazing we, that you kill birds anyway with that period, huh? Yeah. It's really, I mean, you're obviously going to kill if you shoot a duck at 30 yards with any steel BB, you're going to kill it hard, right? Right. 
But the problem is the moment you exceed that distance, the space becomes so big between each pellet, you're barely going to hit the bird with a pellet or two. So how are you going to hit a vital unless you're really lucky? So what happens is people break wings and they knock a bird down and then they consider that as a working load. It didn't work. You just knocked it down. Now you got to go chase it and kill it. Yep. You know how many snow geese I've ran across the freaking cornfield wearing 1,600 gram Thinsley boots or yeah. waders and I'm running 200 yards yeah. running down snow geese because the guy next to me is shooting triple B or BB. I'm like, come on, man. I'm killing that bird stone dead with fours. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. So that's a that's a people don't think about. That's a big feedback I get all the time, and it's funny because I look back all those pattern videos I did, and it's almost embarrassing after talking to you, which you're a professional. I'm some backyard yuppie trying to do that, but it's definitely changed my mindset, and I'm going to do things better moving forward. Just from someone now that's taught me, like yourself, how to do it properly, but but from my own experience. A couple three years ago, I really got big on the 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 smaller shot because of having a denser pattern, and people still, even though they've seen it with their eyes, and they see it on paper, they still just can't grasp that. I've heard, well, you ain't shooting honkers, uh, thick metal plated honkers like I am in the Northeast where it's way colder and their downs way thicker. You don't know, and I'm like, I, I promise you, I could I could go out there with my twenty gauge three inch six shot and stone them harder than you can not because of me because you're making a good shot but you're also because you're you've you're like you said you're throwing a blanket on them i like that reference you use my uh my dad and i back in the 80s early well i mean 70s and 80s and my dad i mean hundreds thousands of times in the 50s when you know they would go out on the breakwater shooting a case of lead. A case was 500 rounds back then. They would be on a breakwater, you know, shooting divers and all sorts of things. And one of the guys would have to go in and make an ammo run because they ran out. Okay. These guys and, and many of us that hunted during the lead days, my dad and I used to go out in the marsh. We would kill geese with 20 gauge, seven and a half target loads. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. And the reason we used to be able to do that is because they're coming to the decoys at 30 yards, 25 yards, and we're shooting them right in the face. Right. Mm -hmm. So we're shooting them in the head, the neck. And it was amazing to see the devastation using a lead target load on big geese. And I'm talking in December and January when there was two feet of ice out here, you want to talk goose down and fat. (laughs) I mean, we, we used to shoot seven and a half sixes, The only time that my dad and I shot lead fours was when we were hunting big water on the breakwater and we were hunting divers, right? And the only time we shot a lead two is when we were hunting geese in big water or people weren't letting them come down and we had to shoot at extended distances. Mm. That was it. Lead two was like the farthest magnum load we would ever use on geese. And I used to watch my dad fold geese at distances like people would never even think about picking the gun up mm. and they would be stone dead. Remind I mean, me again I, why you you said it in the last podcast, but I can't remember. Remind me again why the bigger shot for the farther distance. Is it because of energy? Yeah. So, so basically it's a fine line between energy for penetration and not enough pellets, right? So 
So basically a BB and a number one and a number two retain more velocity downrange and more punch than a smaller pellet. So that's the benefit of it. But the problem is you still need to have enough pellets in that 30 inch circle to put on a target to reliably kill it. Right. Yeah. So that's where the fine line comes in. So if you don't have enough pellets on the target at any given distance, you're not going to kill it. Right. And that's where the big pellets really drop off in reliability. And that's why I was wondering, you were saying, I think you said twos. Did you say twos on lead? Why, why did yeah. he why did he switch from that to twos when he was going beyond that distance? Because then it would be less, right? Or was it just so, for energy? So basically back then, you got to remember, a three-inch lead two was an ounce and three quarters. <laughs> mm. and I guess it's because so, of the shape of it. You can get more in there, huh? Yeah. And okay. it was... And it was, um, you know, 1,200 feet per second, Yeah, 1160. So basically at 50 yards, you were shooting a slug of lead. Good grief. Wow. You know? Wow. Okay. Um, that makes so more again, sense because I'm thinking that's what kills us is the circle shape on everything we shoot. The Back then it was, it could just yeah. stuff a lot it, more in it, there. Okay. It was lead. It was a very heavy payload at low velocity. Again, yeah. velocity was a key, right? Yeah. So if you look back at all turkey loads, these days some weird things are happening again with velocity and with components. But if you look back 5, 10, and further years, and you look at all turkey loads on the market, it's like two ounces of lead at 1145 or 1160 feet per second. And I've had people say, well, the only reason it's that slow is because of proof pressure, Sammy standards. You can't shoot an ounce and five eighths or an ounce and three quarters at anything faster than that because you'd blow the gun up. That's not true. It's still way less than a three and a half inch magnum at 1500 feet per second. Okay. The reason ammo manufacturers make turkey loads really heavy and really slow is because they know that turkey hunters are very picky about patterning. And the reason they're picky about patterning is because they know they have to hit a very small target at extended distances. And turkey hunters will be very picky about patterns, chokes, ammo, and ammo companies know this. Ammo companies know that turkey hunters are very picky about patterning. And they know that if they give them a hyper velocity shell with a light payload, they're never going to buy it because they're never going to kill a turkey past 30 yards, mm-hmm. right? They also know that waterfowl hunters and clay target shooters, 88% of people have never shot a pattern on paper. They don't even know what it means. Right. So they know that they can pull a wool over their eyes with light payloads and hypervelocity because most duck hunters are not patterning. And even the ones that are, they're shooting stuff inside 30 yards anyway, so it doesn't matter as much. Yeah. So turkey hunters, different ball game, right? Yep. Okay. So so why is it that turkey loads are extremely heavy in payload and very slow in velocity, but duck loads are very light in payload and very fast in velocity? Yeah, not good. There's only one answer. Yeah. Marketing. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Pellets are what kill the bird, not spaces between it. Air yeah. does not kill anything. Yeah. So the pellets are what kills the bird. Why not have the most of them possible in the shell to do it? And in order to get those pellets to the bird, 
why not give it the optimal thing that's needed, which is a slower velocity than what most companies are giving? Mm-hmm. Well, like you said, you're killing a you're killing a sparrow at 365 feet per second, or or even something bigger than that. You know? Oh yeah, much we, and we get in our head. That was like an eye opener for me is when you said that. I was like, yeah, I've killed hundreds of birds like that with a yep. BB gun as a kid. Why do we think we got to have 2,000 feet per second? You know, the fastest thing out there. It's yep. just, it made so much sense. But, uh, well, I want to, I want to, if it's okay with you, I want to jump into some uh, different questions. Sure. Um, what do you use, Jim, when patterning? You told us on the original episode, what you do and how we should do it. First off, how to make sure your gun is good, your barrel, take the choke out, shoot threads only, then see if it's shooting straight and all that. But are you using um, anything specific, like say when you're actually patterning it and you got the 30-inch circle, do you use any type of... Uh, I know there's some things out there you can take a picture of your pattern and it reads it and the kill ratio. Are you counting it yourself? How are you going about seeing what it is, what you like? What's the process? So, so the thing that's always worked for me best that translates to what works out on the field is basically I draw a 30-inch circle, okay. a 24-inch circle, and an 18-inch circle. And then I put a cross through it, right, which gives me 12 quadrants. You said 30, 18, and 12? Yep. And then a, cr- a cross? No, 30, like- 30. 24. I'm sorry. Yeah. And 18. 18. Okay. Sorry. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. And then then across, meaning like just a, okay. Yep, just across. Okay. And, you know, over the years, and depending on what I'm using, I've I've done 30-inch, 20-inch, 10-inch. Okay. You know, so, but I always do three circles and put a cross through it, so I always end up with 12 quadrants. Okay. Right? And then when I pattern, I don't pattern, I don't just fire one shot. Mm. Because if you fire just one shot, it does not show you any type of shot-to-shot deviation averages. And also, there's so many different variations in shells and velocity and, and all different things. One shot 
is going to be entirely different than another shot. So firing just one shot is not going to give you a good ratio. What I've found is firing three to five shots at the same exact target and then doing the pellet counts, doing the point of impact, seeing the variation and the quadrant counts because it's going to give you a much better average across the board. Mm. Okay. And you just do that physically. You're just counting that yourself. There's no little. Yes. Okay. Yep. Okay. And then, and then the big thing about this though, like I talked about, it's only two dimensional shooting paper. Yeah. And I understand that it's, it's most of what people have access to and it's most of what they can do. But what I always try to teach people is if you're only going to shoot paper, you're not going to learn a lot of what it's actually doing. It meaning the pattern, you know, the shot string, how Mm -hmm. it's going to react on birds. So what I always like to do is shoot stuff on water Mm -hmm. because you can see what it's doing on water. You know, you could put a decoy out there. You could put a gallon milk jug out there. You could do whatever you want to do, but you can visually see especially if you record it with something like a camera, mm-hmm. right? Or your phone zoomed in on a target. You can really see what loads do and what different chokes do at that target on water or mud. If you have access to mud, mud is phenomenal because it actually remains after you shoot it. You can actually get a really good visualization of it. So these things being on a horizontal plane are going to show you a lot more than a flat two-dimensional piece of paper. Because every pellet in that shell is going to pass through that paper. Yeah. But what did it really look like in the air? What did it look like on a bird on the water? You know? Right. So that this is where you can see a big difference of what works and what doesn't. Like I explained, if you shoot something at a given yardage on water and it doesn't look like an explosion in the water where you cannot visually separate the pellets it was just like a big boom. That's what's going to work. If you see when you pull a trigger on water at whatever given distance you choose to do the test at, if you see a bunch of individual pellets hit the water all around the bird, there's a very slight chance of killing that bird. And if it's like that on the water, you can imagine what it's going to be like in the air. Yeah. Okay. Your margin of error is going to be, very low. Um, your cripple ratio is going to be very high. The, these are the things that I look at. Now, the advantage of your chokes, um, <clears throat> because we know there's still, we not everybody can make their own loads or buy a load that has the lower velocities and has, has all that. The advantage of your, what's the advantage of your chokes with, let's say, a three-inch, uh, still three inch four shot um, at fifteen hundred feet per second. Why is that your choke? Your choke is helping that and clean that up still, right? Even with those non perfect yes. loads. Yeah. So what I teach people is if you take the shittiest patterning load on the market and put it through my choke, it's going to pattern shitty still, but it's going to pattern the best it can pattern. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. If you take premium loads that pattern really good, my chokes are going to help them outperform anything else that there is in that gun. And the reason I can make that strong statement is because I've proven it. And so have other independent studies. Mm -hmm. So what I did 
was back in the day when I realized that every single gun, if you take the choke out of them and shoot them, they pattern different with no choke at all. So how can you put the same choke in every one of them and say it's this because it's not right. Mm. So what I realized was that if you, if you took a gun that started this way with no choke in it, and you took another gun and took the choke out it and it started entirely different. Well, if they start different, they're going to end different. So that means they need to have something different in them to make them the most efficient as possible. So what was efficient in gun A cannot be efficient in gun B if they both entirely pattern different with no choke at all. Right. Does that make yep, sense? Yep. So when I realized that, I also realized that I needed to have something different in each gun to make them most efficient. And what I realized is that each choke company that was out there, they basically made the chokes the same for every gun regardless. So they didn't investigate. They didn't try every single gun with every single ammo by changing all the different geometries in the choke to get the way to produce the pattern that was best for that particular gun A and gun B and gun C. So that's what I did. So what I did was I called the GSPG, gun specific patterning geometry. What I did was I started with one gun. I changed every geometry in the choke tube that you could imagine. And then when I got the most even lowest shot to shot deviation pattern that that gun could produce, with the best patterning ammo on the market, I then drew the blueprint for the choke for that gun, moved to the next gun and started all over and repeated that process. Mm. So every one of my chokes for every single gun has its own taper length, its own parallel length, its own gasker clearance, its own surface finish, its own radius blend at the tangent point, its own um, constriction amount, exit diameter, it's got all these different things, different lengths even, because some of them like the shorter parallel and a shorter taper length. So I was able wow. to make the overall choke shorter because it liked it better. Wow. You know, I've, I've had so many people in the sporting clay industry that are like, hey, man, your Kragoff choke doesn't fit in my case because it sticks out two inches. Can you make me a shorter one? And my answer is I could, but I'm not going to because I'm not going to give you inferior patterns because you want to choke shorter so it fits in your gun case. Yeah. I won't do it. Yeah, right. I'm not going to make my patterns inferior because you want a shorter choke tube. Yeah. I'm not doing it. So the reason my choke tubes are what they are is because I've already perfected them to be the best that your gun can achieve with every ammo across the blank, across the market, hmm. you know? Yeah. Wow. That you know, does just take so much work to get to that. You, I can't even imagine how did, much you've had to did. tweak that stuff. I mean, the thing, when I went on this journey, <clears throat> the thing about it was when I made, when I basically made decision to sell chokes to people, my biggest thing was that I didn't want people to come back to me and say, Hey man, I bought a set of your chokes or I bought one of your chokes and it patterns the worst out of every choke I've ever shot. <laughs> like that's not, that's not what I want. There's a lot of chokes out there that actually do that. Right. 
And it's not that the choke company did it on purpose. It's that they made the choke to their experience, to their knowledge, to their blueprints, to their dimensions. And then I put in my gun and it patterns this one ammo incredibly well. Right. But then I put in my other gun or I put in, put a different ammo in and it patterns horrific. I didn't want that. Right. Because mm -hmm. that's, what's already out there. Right. I wanted a choke tube that when I sell it to you and you put it in your gun, you know that you're getting one of the most efficient patterns possible in that gun, regardless of what ammo you choose and regardless of what distance you choose to use that. Mm. That was my goal. And that's what I achieved based on what I did. Mm -hmm. I actually created it specifically to do that. Mm. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> that's awesome. So, you know, I've, I've had people over the years and, and recently with all the different chokes on the market, all the different ammos coming out, all the different guns coming out, you know, I've had people say to me, Hey, your choke didn't outperform this one choke with this ammo. And I'm like, that's certainly possible because there's so many variations. Yeah. But the fact is my chokes are going to routinely outperform every other choke with that ammo because of what I've done. Yeah. Are there going to be, are there going to be variations every once in a while where it doesn't? Yes, there are. It's impossible to make it the best every single time, every single scenario. But the fact is I've created the highest percentage possible based on what I've created. Right. You know? Right. <clears throat> Let's move on to something a little bit different here. Um, for my own curiosity, um, I bought a 28 gauge last year. I've been wanting one for probably four years. Uh, me and my buddy were going to buy one the same year. He ended up buying it, and I had to financially. I just didn't want to spend the money. And uh, so he was way ahead of me on having one and experiencing it. And um, and the reason I kind of say that is because they're, the hype for those started like two years ago. So I'm what I'm saying is I wanted one of those before the hype started, but I just didn't, wasn't able to get it. But anyways, I got it last year, fell in love with it, um, and... My, I told you this offline. I said my shooting percentage is the best out of all three gauges that I have. Maybe part of it, I think, is because I'm being careful on what shot I take and I'm being more picky and I'm taking more time because I'm thinking, oh, you know, a 28 gauge. But I've never felt undergunned. Now, someone did say something to me, and I don't think it's probably from experience. They're, they're probably just hearing things. I would like to hear your opinion on is there, this is probably not the right word, so don't think I'm too stupid, but ballistic, can you say ballistics with a shotgun? Is that, is that something you oh, can Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. Is the ballistics on a, on a 28 gauge more sound because of a smaller barrel or is it, what is it about the 28 gauge? Is it on paper always going to be better? Like I don't, I'm not, I can't probably put it in words that I'm trying to, to ask you what I want to ask you, but. So like a square load. Yes. Is it, is it, have you seen really good on average patterns and consistencies with the 28 gauge? So, so that's a big nutshell in itself. So, so as a rule of thumb or as a, as a blanket statement, I cannot say a 28 gauge is going to be a square load or it's going to be ballistically superior to okay. anything else. Right. Okay. And, and here's why a 28 gauge can be incredible. Okay, I've seen 28 gauge patterns that were way better than 20 gauge. 
and I've seen 28 gauge patterns that were even better than 12 gauge patterns. Mm. But most of the reason is because of the bore diameter in the 28 gauge and the load that's being used in it and the choke that's being used just like mm. any other gauge in any other gun. Okay. Let me explain that a little bit. So people used to talk about square loads, right? And you'll hear a lot of people in, in 28 gauges talk about square loads. And this is why 28 gauges are superior to any other gauge. Um, but basically square load basically means the length of the shot string or the length of the payload versus the bore diameter of the shotgun. And here's why you throw all that out the window. Back in the day when 12 gauge was made, it was supposed to be a 725 bore like a Remington, right? And I believe Winchester and Browning were all 725 bore because 725 thousandths of an inch is considered 12 gauge, okay? Mm. 12 gauge is defined by how many lead balls of that diameter can fit into a pound, mm. right? And 12 gauge is 725. But then over the years, gun companies started making barrel bore diameters different. They started going to 720. They started going to 730, 732, 735, 740, 742, 745. Mossberg 835, 935 Ultimag, 777. It's a 10 gauge bore, but it's 12 gauge gun, right? So you've got an absolute variation in a 12 gauge from 719 being the tightest all the way to 777 in a Mossberg uh, 835 Ultimag, right? So a 12 gauge is no longer a 12 gauge. Same thing for a 28 gauge, same thing for a 16, a 20, a 28, and a 410. Every gun company wants to say theirs is better, so they make their barrel bore diameters different. They make their forcing cones different. They make their choke tubes different because they all want to say that theirs are better. You know, Zoli claims that their patterns are better than anything in the industry because they have better barrels than anybody. Parazzi claims the same. Beretta DT-11 claims the same with their Optima bore barrels. Everybody has a claim to fame off of their barrels, but what a lot of them don't talk about are their chokes, right? So 28 gauge is no better than any other gauge if you're not shooting the proper bore diameter with the proper load through it with the proper choke tube in the end of it. Okay. So with that said, you can see how vast it could become. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yes, a lot of 28 gauge barrels pattern really good because most of those patterns have been generated from target guns using target loads and lead. Okay. Okay. And a three quarter ounce lead number eight or lead seven and a half traveling at 1200 feet per second out of a 28 gauge is incredible. I mean, you could turn targets inside out at 65 yards with a lead seven and a half out of a 28 gauge, three quarter ounce, because it's a square load in most 28 gauge guns. However, some 28 gauge guns have a very small diameter bore like a mobile choke Beretta or a Caesar Guarini. However, if you take a Browning in Vector Plus 28 gauge, the bore is overboard and it's a bigger bore. In that 28-gauge Browning, I could make that gun outperform a 12-gauge all day long Mm. with the right ammo with my chokes. 
it's because it's got such a big bore in it. I could shove a lot of lead through it and really pattern it incredible. Mm. I could load an ounce and an eighth nickel fives in a Browning 28 gauge, and I could fold the pheasant stone dead at 65 yards going away from me. Like you shot it with a 10 gauge. Well, the, so, can I say something real quick on that? Yep. You say that. I, I don't know if I mentioned to you. I think I did mention to you about that Eurasian widget I got. Yeah, I was absolutely mind blown. But again, those 20, let me double check those 28 gauge. The load that I was shooting is is a heavy 12. So it's a tungsten, tungsten blend, not full. It's not TSS, obviously, but three inch, six shot, one ounce at 1300 feet per second. And I, sh I mean, the only reason I even took the shot is because of what it was, right? Like I wouldn't, I'm not shooting, I'm not saying you're a criminal if you do. I just don't normally take those shots, but because it had took me a while to track it because I was focused on these mallards, I swung over. This My brother's screaming at me, get him, get him. That's a Euro, it's a Euro. And as it's flying off to my left, I finally find it. By the time I actually pull the trigger, he's close to 60 yards. And it crumpled yep. him, crumpled him. Like, yep. it wasn't even there. And I was just flabbergasted, you know. But now you saying what you're saying, it's like, okay, it makes, <laughs> it makes sense. Yep. You know, my, my, fir my first experience with ballistics on a 28-gauge, I was at a FITAS championship. I think it was the U.S. Open. And there was a lady shooting a 28-gauge. And there was a target that was literally 60 yards on edge going over the top of a tree like a stalling teal. It would go up on edge and then just start to fall. And everybody was missing that target with their 12-gauges. And this woman crushed that target every shot with a 28 gauge. And that was the first time, like I opened up my eyes to 28 gauge and was like, you know, I spoke with the gentleman and um, I started doing a lot more testing with 28 gauge because prior to that, my dad never allowed a 28 gauge in the house because we shot 410, 20 and 12. Mm. And he never wanted me to put a 28 gauge into a 20 gauge or a 12 gauge. Oh, barrel up, okay. You know, so back then 20 gauge, 28 gauge were green or blue hulls. It wasn't all yellow back then. Mm. So in, the, in twilight of the morning, you couldn't see what, what color the shell was. Oh. So a 28 gauge felt like a 20 gauge mm -hmm. in the dark. And he didn't want me putting one in the wrong gun. I was young. Um, and it was dangerous. So it was 4, 10, 20, and 12. That was it. And uh, so it, it was many years later in the 90s when I started to learn about 28 gauge of how great it was. And, um, you know, if, if I had to pick one gun, it would probably be a 28. Hmm. Okay. I love it. Yeah. But then again, I love my 410. Yeah. And I also love my 10 gauges. So Do you? Oh yeah. Okay. Well, talk a little. Talk nothing about, like a ten gauge. Okay. Man. I don't. I don't have. So what? I don't know where they've done this in other states, but I know in California, like it's it's illegal to even have a ten gauge on a refuge. You're not even allowed to shoot them. But yeah. can you talk about the ten gauge just for a minute? I mean, I got some more questions, and we'll try maybe if we can go. We'll probably cut it off at the two hour mark. Is that okay with you? Do you have enough time to do yeah, that? Because yeah, I got, that's fine. Okay, we're about an hour and a half already, but um. The 10 gauge, what is it that you love about the 10 gauge? Payload. I've never shot one. Okay, just straight payload. up payload. Okay. 
Yeah, so there's a myth that goes around. A lot of people say, oh, my God, 10 gauge, you're out of your mind. You know, you might as well hit yourself with a sledgehammer. The fact <laughs> is a 10 gauge kicks less than a 12 gauge. And the reason hmm. is it's it's heavier than a 10 gauge, oh, a 12 gauge okay. by a lot, right? So Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Excuse me. So so felt recoil in foot pounds is one to one per pound. Okay. So if you have a 10 gauge gun versus a five pound gun, a 10 pound gun versus a five pound gun, the five pound gun, you're going to get five more foot pounds of recoil to your shoulder shooting the same load mm-hmm. right yeah furthermore a 10 gauge has a really big bore diameter which means you get a lot less back pressure mm. right okay. per ounce of shot so so in a 10 gauge if you were to shoot an ounce and three quarter load versus a 12 gauge ounce and three quarter load you're going to have a tremendous amount more of back pressure in a 12 gauge than in a 10 gauge on top of it, the 10 gauge is going to weigh several pounds more than your 12 gauge. So the ratio goes way down of felt recoil. Okay. So a 10 gauge is much more comfortable to shoot, provided you can lift it yeah. and move it, you know, efficiently. Um, if you're a very small individual that doesn't have a lot of muscle mass, um, if you're very old or if you're weak in any way, a 10 gauge, it's you're going to struggle to mount it and swing it right? Especially on a bird moving. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're capable of moving that gun efficiently, um, there's nothing like it. And the fact, the raw fact that you can put more pellets down a 10 gauge bore without blowing the pattern. Um, again, square load concept, a 777 bore, you could fit a lot more pellets in it efficiently than in a 720 bore of a 12 gauge or a 625 bore of a 20 gauge, mm-hmm. right? So so basically it just comes down to the fact that you could use a lot more pellets and which means further shots, which means bigger margin of error, which means more vitals getting hit, which means less cripples. 
So yeah, 10 gauge is superior mm. and, and big gauge guns are always going to be superior to small gauge guns Yeah, because of pellets. Now, if you use a one ounce payload and a 10 gauge, 12 gauge, 20 gauge, 28 gauge, which one's going to be most efficient? That's where ballistics come in with choke tube, velocities, pellet size, all that stuff. What kind of hunt scenario are you liking the 10 gauge in? Uh, as far as pellet material and all that fun stuff? No, I mean like the hunt scenario as far as the setting. Oh, where, where are you? If I'm sitting on a beach and I'm hunting an eider or scoter and I know that I'm going to be shooting far, okay. or if I'm out in a cornfield shooting geese at sick yardages um, because I want to, <laughs> or because I'm going to wait till everybody's gun is empty and then I'm going to pick my three <laughs> birds and kill them, you know, the 10 gauge is superior. I'm not that you, I don't want you to feel like you're having to pat yourself on the back or boast about yourself, but I wonder, uh, you saying that, I wonder how many times people have looked over at you after you picked the birds off when they all done, probably were like, what in the world just happened? Has, yeah. has that happened a few it, times to you? Yeah. A lot of times. I, I think that the thing that happens the most is when I'm hunting with a group of people and, um, you know, there'll be a single coming up the middle of the channel mm -hmm. or there'll be a flock of birds and there's one drake in between a bunch of hens and they're at 50 or 60 yards and people are just talking, watching them go by. And I'm like, kill that drake. And they laugh and they're like too far. And I'm like, no, it's not. And I pick up and I needle them out of the hens and everybody's like, what the hell was that? And I'm like, it's not too far, man. You just got to know how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you've got a lot of flack for that, though, because a lot of people think that I mean, you're a sky buster. I mean, you had to have heard yeah. that. So but are you so a sky buster, though, if you're confident and you're killing them, though? So here's what I love about those comments, right? So, so like nobody hunting with me is ever going to say I'm a sky buster when I needle a drake out of, out of a string of hens and don't yeah. touch a hen, right? Yeah. So, so obviously that was skill and it was also knowing my ballistics. Yep. I would never, I would never just do that and end up killing three hens in the string <clears> because <throat> I'm shooting a big open pattern. I don't know what I'm doing. Right. Yeah. If I do it, it's because I can, but the definition of a sky buster, in my opinion, is somebody that just like shoots into a flock of birds or shoots at birds that are unhittable or unkillable at stupid distance. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's nothing like none of us are going to condone that. Right. Cause it's ridiculous. But if I can have a flock of birds and I can pick out a single Drake and I can fire one shot and kill that Drake and not hit anything else, how can you say that sky bust? Right, right. It's not. Yeah. It's the same difference as if I do it at 20 yards. If I can do it at 100 yards, why are you going to say it's sky busting? <laughs> it doesn't matter what distance you do it at. Mm. It's the same thing. So, so it all comes down to skill level, knowledge, and knowing what you've got at that distance. 100%. So you know? what I see, and I don't, maybe I like to hear your thoughts on this. So the other avenue that that conversation goes is, well, you're not a good duck hunter. You're not, you're not talented or skilled enough to get them in your spread. So you got to take those kind of shots. What do you say to that? So what I say to that is, you know, does everybody shoot their deer at a hundred yards? 
with a rifle? Mm. No. You've got people that go out Midwest and they make 600-yard shots. Why do they do it? Because they can and they've trained for it. It's because it's what they like to do, right? There's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with it. I've never shot a deer past 22 yards with my, with my bow. But guess what? There's a huge amount of people out there that have shot deer past 60. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they can, because they've trained for it. Mm -hmm. They have the right equipment. They've got the right skill level. It's not that they're bad. It's not that they're not good for the industry. As a matter of fact, they're really incredible promoters for the industry and for the sport. It's because they have a huge amount of knowledge because those guys have shot more deer at 20 yards than we've ever imagined mm -hmm. to shoot past 50, mm -hmm. right? So <clears throat> the same thing happens with people that, you know, make long shots on ducks, right? There's always going to be that fine line of, you know, you, okay, so like the comment you made, like the questions we get, you're shooting ducks really far because you can't finish them, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I've killed more ducks over decoys inside 25 yards than most hunters will ever see, mm -hmm. right? So it's not that I can't do it. It's just that I can do other things, so I do, right? So when we go out and we set out decoys, sometimes we'll set our decoys out of 15 or 20 yards and we'll finish ducks. Mm. But a lot of the hunting I do these days are in open water, hunting divers and sea ducks. So we may set our decoys out of 25 yards for the finished string, but a lot of decoys we're setting out at 40 yards and 60 yards and 100 yards to be able to pull those birds on a on a string yeah. from way out where they are and have them get their attention and bring them up the string mm. to try to finish them. But guess what? If the bird decides to start to put his feet out at 60 yards and I know I can kill it, yeah. I kill it. Right. So there's a difference between not being able to finish birds and birds not wanting to finish. <laughs> but the fact is, if I can finish them, then why would I not do it? Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. yeah. It, there's a difference. Yeah, that's well, well said. You've been asked that yeah. before, I can tell, because you have a great answer for that in response. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, if I'm sitting down on the beach with a bunch of guys, I'm not pulling the trigger. I'm watching everybody hunt, enjoy the hunt. We're laughing. We're joking. We're, we're you know, heckling each other. I'm the last guy to pick up the gun. Mm -hmm. And usually, unless everybody else has shot their limits and now it's my turn. But for the most part, I'm not like jumping up, killing everything. I'm sitting back watching everybody shoot. I'm like, hey, man, here they come. Get ready, you know. And then when everybody's guns are empty or or they've already gone, I'm I'm the guy down all the way on the right mm -hmm. and everybody's already passed everybody and they're going off in front of me. If I want to take my Drake or I want to take my shot, I take it, mm -hmm. you know. So so it's just a different scenario, yeah. you know, just like guides and outfitters. They're in the blind. They're not shooting a lot of times. They're killing cripples or when people empty their guns and there's some birds sailing off, the guide will stand up and kill it at 50, 60 yards yeah. because they want to try to finish that bird and have it not get away and die somewhere else. Yeah. <clears throat> so it's not that it's not that we're sky busting 
where it's not that we cannot finish birds. It's just that we like to do things differently. Mm -hmm. I, I personally, if I have a single bird flying by at 65 yards and nobody wants to take a shot and I know I can kill that bird stone dead, I really enjoy doing that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Do I get a lot of pleasure out of finishing a bird and having him put his feet out at 20 yards, finishing the bird with a duck call and getting them to do that because I have the right blind and the right decoys with the wind in the right way and the sun at the right position? I really enjoy doing that. Do I enjoy pulling the trigger at that bird at 20 yards? Mm. Yeah. Nope. Mm. I don't. <clears throat> okay. And the reason I'm I don't is because I can <clears throat> shoot him at a 410. So if I'm going to shoot a bird at 20 yards, I'm going to head shoot him. Yeah. It's not a challenge to me. Mm. So if I'm not challenged, why am I doing it? Mm. Yeah. It's my opinion. Yeah, yeah. No, I respect that, and I appreciate that, and it's a good uh, definition of it. Um, I'm just out of curiosity, how many days a year or season do you hunt? get to hunt? So in Connecticut, if I'm not traveling hunting, in Connecticut, it's sort of weird because our first half of the season is only two days in October. Mm. So obviously in October, I'm not shooting anything in Connecticut. If I'm traveling and hunting, I am. And then once the Connecticut season opens back up in November, I'm hunting almost every day, whether it's in Connecticut or another state, from when that second half opens in November to when it ends February 15th. Your then, season ends on February 15th? Is that? So So the ducks end end of January, you know, sometime oh, between January and then your late 20th geese. and January yeah, 25th. But then the geese the bonus season stays open till February 15th Okay, where we could shoot, you know, five geese a day. Okay. And do you get to travel quite a bit too? I do. Okay. I do. Yeah. We haven't even talked about your waterfowl stuff. I mean, that, that, that's probably going to be a whole podcast or two in itself. I mean, uh, you've said you've been doing it since you're a young kid. Um, I mean, what's your, what's kind of one of your things you're looking forward to the most this season? Besides just hunt, obviously duck hunting in general season so, being open, but yep. So this season I'm going to uh, be going to Maine with a couple good friends on an eider hunt. Oh, um, wow. That'll be a lot of fun. I haven't hunted Maine um, for sea ducks since probably uh, mid nineties. Um, so I'm looking forward to not only the hunt, but with, you know, who I'm going to be yeah. with, yeah. it'll just be a nice experience. Um, so I'm looking forward to that this year. Um, I'm going down to spend probably a couple of weeks with Joel Strickland down on uh, Lost Bridge Duck Club. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll be hunting down there for a couple of weeks, probably in January. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, we're putting some people together to hunt with us um, in the process of doing that. So I'm really looking forward to that. I'll probably be doing some duck hunting and goose hunting in Maryland. Um, I'm going to probably head up to Canada for a little while. And, uh, you know, it's going to be cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Sounds like you got some good things lined out this season. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's going to be, that'll be fun. That'll be exciting. Two weeks at, uh, at Joel's place. I'll be, sound like that could be a yeah. good time. It's coming along really well. They're doing amazing. They have amazing progress going on with what they're doing there. It's going to be a, an, it's going to be an incredible duck club. Yeah. He, he, he found it, man. 
Yeah. You found the place yeah, for sure. <clears throat> yeah. And the amount of work they're doing to it. I mean, it was already incredible before they did anything right. to it in my eyes. And it wasn't nearly what Joel wanted. And uh, the things they've done are leaps and bounds. And the amount of birds on that property and the amount of birds coming to that property, it, it's mind boggling. Hmm. So they're going to have a tremendous duck club there. Wow. Um, and I, I feel like this might be just a good place to maybe, is there anything else you kind of wanted to add in here? Cause I, I know we're going to do, if you're okay with that, I know we're both going to get busy during season, but, and you're going to be out of town quite a bit. Yeah, I like to yeah. somehow squeeze in somewhere. I don't know if it's going to be possible or not during season, but, um, is there anything before we end this that you would kind of like to say or talk about? I don't want to. Yeah. You know, what well, one thing that's cool about is I see everybody doing the hunt 41 and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, that came out of sort of nowhere and I, I think it's really cool and all the, all the different duck posters. But when I was young, my dad had shot everything on the Atlantic flyway. Probably. Yeah. I think I was probably, probably about 10 or 12 years old. He had already shot everything on the Atlantic flyway and, um, you know, him being a taxidermist, he had a more complete collection in the basement in his showroom than Peabody Museum had on display. Mm -hmm. And uh, we used to collect for the museum and all that stuff. So one thing that was really cool, you know, we talk about Hunt 41 and I see everything everybody's doing, which is really cool. And I think back when we used to collect for Peabody Museum and stuff, we used to be able to collect things that you know are federally protected and things you're not allowed to hunt or shoot i got to shoot a lot of those things and um you know i've i've completed the hunt 41 many years ago hmm. um and i've shot a lot of state records and county records and actually country records um in 1988 i shot a red crested poacher hmm. in connecticut um, it was the only only record in the entire country at the time. Wow. I don't know if it still is, um, but I've got that bird mounted. Um, I, I shot my first Eurasian widgeon um, just a couple of years ago. Mm. Um, that completed that. Um, I've shot all the tree ducks and, you know, pretty much everything else. So it's, awesome. it's pretty awesome. Yeah, I'm, you know? I'm working on that myself. <clears throat> my best friend's a, he's a taxidermist and... Um, and I've I've mounted quite a few birds, not not nothing like him, but he I, great teacher. He always gets on me, says you need to get back into it so you can mount your own birds and not make me do it. I was yeah. like, why? It's a lot yeah. easier when you do it, you know. But oh, yeah. uh, I I plan on hopefully I could have all forty one in in my office here, but um, just you know something a goal whatever but yeah it'd be awesome i though i think the one i am gonna definitely have a tough time with is the king eye or those just getting you know the saving the money up but it to me it's worth the money to save you know to do that yeah. experience just is a dream dream hunt but <clears throat> yeah it is anyways it well is. jim thank you so much again for your time um i know these are going to be just as enjoyed and appreciated as much as the other ones and I, I really do appreciate your your time and your knowledge coming on today you got it, man. Thank you very much. And I got the chokes in. I got the passing yep. and the decoy choke. And tomorrow morning, first thing in the morning, I am going to do the whole thing on my 20 gauge. And I'm, I'm really excited to see the results. Yeah, man. I can't wait for you to pull a trigger on some feathers. Yeah, me you'll, too. Uh, you'll, you'll really like it. Yeah, thanks. All right, guys. Well, thanks for listening on this episode. And we will see you guys on the next one.